Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Let's go to John chapter 18, John 18. We're going to look at uh, Jesus' conversation with Pilate, Jesus' conversation with Pilate. There's a lot here, and I have to tell you that I'm afraid we won't be able to deal with everything that's in this, but I'd like to talk about this. This story is filled with sad irony, and if you know what irony is, it's when you expect one thing and you get another, and uh, sometimes irony can be funny, but in this instance, it's not funny. You see the powerful judged by the powerless, the innocent, um, the innocent is punished, not the guilty. Uh, Truth is rejected, not lies. And in the crucifixion, the whole corrupt system of humanity's rebellion is put on display. And so we see um, we see in the uh, crucifixion of Jesus what man, uh, humanity can do when it's in rebellion against God. And of course, we all we all know from practical experience that there are injustices in the world, but uh, the the greatest injustice of all has to be that he came to his own, and his own received him not. And not only did they not receive him, but they crucified him. And uh, that's the the world's chiefest uh, injustice. And so, I'd like to take a look, starting at verse uh, twenty-eight and following. Let's just read through this. We're going to go through nineteen. Verse 16, that's a big passage, but uh, I think it's worth taking the time to look at all of this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be, to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is this your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then said Pilate, and there's an exclamation point there. You know, that's not in the original. They're trying to help us, and I didn't say it with quite the zest, so substitute that in your mind. Uh, You are a king then. All right, maybe more like that. Uh, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews and gathered there, the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis of charge against him. 
but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out, Wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be son of God. Then Pilate heard this. When Pilate heard this, he was even more terrified, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to set you free or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone claims uh, to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and he sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. There's a picture that sometimes we see related to this. And uh, maybe you've seen that picture before. Here Pilate stands at the judgment seat looking out at the chief priests and the elders. Let's just work through this a little bit. I'm going to call this first part indictment, okay? It's the indictment. And uh, we'll put this at verses 28 through 32. All of my antivirus stuff wants to happen on Wednesday night. Not yet. Not yet. No. No. Uh, that's coming later in the story. I mean, perhaps, but um, this is, uh, I think it just was trying to capture the whole event more than anything else. So 28 through 32, we're going to call this indictment. This is this is the indictment. Indictment is when they, they brought the charge against Jesus. And so we see uh, John skips past Caiaphas' trial. Okay, you, you read in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, about the trial before Caiaphas. And you maybe you remember that portion of it. And John, for whatever reason, goes straight from Annas, uh, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law and more of an emeritus high priest, and he goes right to Pilate. It skips through this whole Caiaphas thing. And uh, I think John was familiar with the other Gospels enough to know uh, that 
it wasn't necessary to recount it. The Gospel of John, you, you'll note, focuses on many things that are different from the Synoptic Gospels. So uh, I think John, writing much later, has read through the other Gospels and heard the other stories, and he feels that it's not necessary to tell every little detail that's already been told. And so John focuses on things that aren't told in the synoptics, except where necessary. And so there's a few things. Um, anybody know, by the way, the only miracle in all four Gospels? Yeah. What was it? It's a big one. The, the feeding of the 5,000. That's the only one in all four Gospels, other than, of course, the resurrection. That's in all four Gospels. But the only public miracle of Jesus where he performed... That miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And then we have the cleansing of the temple is in all four Gospels. And then you have, of course, the death, burial, and resurrection. And this is all intentional. I don't want you to be bothered by the fact that as you read through the Gospels, uh, there are little differences between the, the telling of the story. When I was uh, I first really started to get on fire for God, I, I, I sat and I started to read through Matthew and I went straight into Luke, and this is a shame because I grew up in the church that I didn't realize that those Gospels told the same story with a little bit different detail. How did I not know that growing up in church? It makes me really sad. Somebody dropped the ball. Maybe it was me, that I wasn't reading my Bible enough as a kid to know that. But don't be bothered by that, that the details are different. The differences have reasonable explanations, and uh, remember, the Gospels are testimonies about the life of Jesus, and so different people have different emphasis and things that they saw. Uh, you would think if somebody came into the court of law and their story matched up exactly too much, what's the word for that? Collusion, right? That somehow they talked about this and got all their facts straight beforehand. But if they come and there's some little minor differences, you would say these are, this is more like what an eyewitness would do. So there are some differences in the story, but none of them are contradictions. And so um, when it comes to these testimonies, the gospel writers only included the facts that are relevant to their telling of the story. And if you're interested in a book that makes sense of those differences, a good one would be Thomas and Gundry's uh, Harmony of the Gospels. And what they do is they put all of the passages parallel to each other right on the page, and then down at the bottom, anytime there's some kind of difference or seeming discrepancy, they give a note about that, and they help explain why there can be differences. So if that matters to you, uh, Thomas and Gundry, A Harmony of the Gospels. So here's how this kind of works. If I asked you, how was your day? Uh, I hope you wouldn't tell me every detail. You know what I mean? Like, uh, if you said, uh, because if you offered every detail, I'd get lost, but if uh, you wanted to tell me that you had an exciting day, you probably wouldn't tell me about standing in line at the grocery store unless it was relevant. You don't want to give the second-by-second play-by-play of standing there looking at the uh, magazine, the tabloids, and somebody coughed, and, oh, you could get lost in boring details, couldn't you? But if you told me that you got a visit from the feds, well, that's exciting, <laughs> That's a detail that's worth mentioning. Or if you, you said something about, uh, you know, I got a promotion at work or something like that, that's relevant. So that would be something more like what the gospel writers are doing. They're, they're pointing out the pertinent details. We don't have a lot in every area, but we do have the significant details. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they talk about 
Caiaphas and the trial there. John, you got enough of that information. Let me tell you about what you don't know. You don't know all that happened at at Annas' house. You don't know all that's taken place with Pilate. And so he tells some different details. In verse uh, 28, it says, There were Jewish leaders that took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. But now it was early in the morning to avoid ceremonial uncleanness. They didn't enter the palace because they wanted to make, uh, they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So it talks here about them taking Jesus from Caiaphas's house. We, we hear it, he goes from Annas to Caiaphas and then immediately from Caiaphas to, to Pilate, his palace, his, his house. The KJV says the hall of judgment. Uh, ESV says governor's headquarters. The New American Standard Bible says the Praetorium. And what this was, was Herod the Great's old palace, and it was used by the Roman prefect, whoever that was, and it happens to be Pilate at this time, when they came to Jerusalem from Caesarea during the feast. I don't know if you knew this, but Pilate doesn't live in Jerusalem. Pilate lives in Caesarea, and he only comes down when there's a potential for riots. And one of those times is when people are coming in from all over the Roman Empire for the Passover. So that's why Pilate's in town. It's a very key time. He's in town to oversee this, this very thing. Craig Keener in his uh, uh, book, Bible Background Commentary, he said, Pilate came precisely to ensure that order was maintained during the feast when Jerusalem was overcrowded and riots were most apt to break out. So Rome was concerned with something. I want to put this on the screen. It's not that important. You don't need to know this for the test. But this is Pax Romana. Anybody know what that means? Yeah? Okay. So Pax, peace of Rome. Okay, so this is what, uh, this is what uh, Rome is concerned with. It's both a promise and a threat. And there's some overlap here with messianic promises that uh, is some trouble. Like, we could relate this to if if our federal government told us, we're going to provide everything you need for life and godliness. And we said, yes, I trust in the federal government. Okay. So this is what Rome is offering. is They're, they're offering peace. Peace to you. Okay. And so it's a promise that Rome would provide peace for all people under its banner. And so Rome saw itself as the gift to the world by bringing peace. So for the first time since Alexander the Great, it united Greeks, Romans, and Jews under one government. And life could really be carried out with, uh, without the constant threat of war unless you broke the peace. Okay, So think about this for a moment. They're trying to provide in an artificial way what only God can really give. Are you with me on that? So there's a conflict already in, in the kingdoms. There's a conflict between the kingdoms here. And uh, it has to do with the Pax Romana. So the promise is, we'll give you peace as long as you live by our laws. The moment you start breaking the peace, we will come down on you. And that's the threat side of this. The threat was that one way to bring down the wrath of Rome was to disturb the peace. Anybody remember the riot in Ephesus in Acts 19? Remember that? So uh, the city clerk gets up. Paul's been brought to the 
um, theater. And uh, the Roman, well, the city clerk gets up and he says something like this. He says that you guys uh, need to quiet this riot down. We know that Diana is great. We know that Artemis is great. But you're rioting and we're in danger of rioting without a reason. And we don't want to bring problems with Rome. So let's squelch this. Because the one thing that would sure to bring Rome in would be rioting. And if you think about it, you can see the dangerous line it was for Jesus to promise to be a king and incite a political revolt against Rome. The Jews were the ones, uh, the one people who felt that they had justification from God to fight the Romans. And so Pilate's in Jerusalem during the Passover festival. I don't, I don't have it here, but somewhere in my notes here, it tells about the number of uh, fighting men that Pilate had at his disposal. And from all records, there's no reason that a people like the Jews should have had that many fighting men as their overlords, except for the fact that they were riotous. Because Rome kept insisting on pushing into their religious spaces. And so there was concern about that. And so Pilate is there to instill the peace. And this is significant. It doesn't seem like it, but it's significant because of what the religious leaders compel Pilate to do, why they, how they compel him to crucify Christ. So it could be legitimately said that while the Jewish leaders killed Jesus to maintain their empire, Pilate reluctantly killed Jesus to maintain the empire of Rome. Okay, I'd like you to notice this next part. We're moving awfully slow, but these are some interesting things here. Notice it says in verse, oh, this is verse 28 still, that uh, by now it was early morning, probably between 6 and 7 in the morning. And to avoid ceremonially, uh, ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Okay, are you following that? They don't want to go in. They don't want to get defiled. So where is, where is that found in Scripture? I think the, the, the Jewish leaders are afraid to enter the house where Gentiles live because they might touch something to cause them to be unclean so then they couldn't participate in the Passover. All right, so do you know a verse related to that? There isn't one. The problem is, is that this teaching comes out of what's known as uh, the Talmud and specifically the Mishnah, where uh, it teaches not to go into the house of Gentiles, but you could go into the courtyard of Gentiles. So all of this is oral law. It's going to be written down in the Mishnah in about 200 AD, but this is the oral traditions that are passed down. Remember, uh, one of the things that Jesus uh, rebuked the religious leaders for is that they had their traditions, okay? So they don't want to come inside the house because they might not be able to participate in the Passovers. And um, so they could go into the courtyard, and that's what they did. So they could appear there but not enter the house. But Jesus was inside. So here's my reasoning on this. We know that from verse 33 and 38, also from chapter 19, verse 4 and 5, 8 and 13. Pilate talks to the Jewish leaders. He goes in to talk to Jesus. 
He comes out to talk to the Jewish leaders. He goes in to talk to Jesus. He has Jesus flogged. Uh, he goes out to talk to the Jewish leaders. He comes in to talk to Jesus. He brings Jesus out. So where is Jesus? He's inside the house, right? He's in the house. And so it seems to me, uh, as I read this, that this cannot be a violation of God's cleanliness laws because that would make Jesus unclean and inadequate to be the sacrifice for all mankind. Do you understand? That Jesus isn't going to get defiled by touching Pilate's house. Jesus, the things he touches, he makes clean. You thought about that? This, it's all different. You know, there's going to be a shift that's going to happen after Jesus. When it used to be touch not, taste not, handle not, now there's a freedom. We don't have to get worried about being infected by spiritual cooties. The kingdom of darkness needs to be worried about us. Come on, true? Okay, and that doesn't mean we shouldn't do immoral things. That's the way we get defiled, is by doing things that are immoral, not by touching something that an ungodly person has touched. Somebody who's demon-possessed touches a glass, and then you go to the restaurant later and you touch that same glass, you're not going to get infected. Okay, That's, I think, a principle that we need to understand, is that we're not infected in that way. It's through uh, our, own, our own willful committal of sin that we open ourselves up to defilement. Okay? So here, uh, Jesus is inside Pilate's private residence. Nobody thought about how he might need to uh, eat the Passover because they were wanting to kill him. And, of course, he's not unclean. It can't be a violation of the law. It's a violation of human traditions is all that it is. In uh, verses, 19, uh, verses uh, 29 and 30 through 31, it says, So Pilate came out, and he asked them, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. I want you to pause for a moment and think about the circularity of that argument. Okay? What, here, this man's a criminal. Well, why is he a criminal? We brought him to you as a criminal. That's not proof. So Pilate begins to ask some questions. We would not have, as if that's supposed to be good enough. We, we would not have handed him over to you. Verse 31, Pilate said, well, then, if you've already con- you're already convinced he's a criminal, take him and judge him by your own law. And that would be fine. They could impose some kind of scourging under their uh, abilities as the high court of Israel. But the one thing that they couldn't do is execute, not at this time. Okay, so under Roman law, they didn't have the right for capital punishment, except in rare temple infractions. If somebody who was Gentile went beyond the partition wall, they had apparently some right to execute in that, in that instance, but not in typical capital uh, crimes. They couldn't, they couldn't execute. And so what do we do with those points um, earlier on in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 59, chapter 10, verse 31, when it says they tried to, they tried to stone him? Um, one, I, I don't think it was necessarily the high court that tried to stone him. I think it was uh, a group of Pharisees that were trying to do that. And the other thing is um, they could have probably gotten away with it, except for now Jesus has ris- risen to a place of popularity where everybody knows him. And Pilate's in town. And if he hears about it, those guys are in trouble. So maybe they can get by with it in some kind of thuggish, 
offshoot, some kind of hidden place where Jesus has violated something, but not when Pilate's in town, not when Jesus has risen to this level of popularity. Remember, right prior to this trial, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Right prior to this trial, he was welcomed into Jerusalem through the triumphal entry with people proclaiming, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's grown in popularity. Remember the uh, religious leaders said the whole, you know, the whole world has gone after him. They're worried about this, so they can't exactly do this. They need Pilate. Plus, there's pressure on themselves if they take his life. If all the people have gone after Jesus, as they think, he, they, think they have, if they're the ones who execute, they could get stoned themselves by the populace. So they need somebody else to be the bad guy. You understand that? They're playing behind the scenes. We need somebody else to sentence Jesus. Well, not only did they need somebody else to do it, but the way that Jesus describes his execution, he needed somebody else to do it. How would uh, the Jewish people have killed Jesus if they had gotten if they had been able to? Stoning, right? which a lot of times meant they would push you off a high place onto the ground and then they would throw rocks at you till you're dead. That's how they would have taken care of Jesus. But how did Jesus describe uh, how he would die? He would have to be lifted up. Okay. So, And it tells us this in some verse, John 12, verse 32 through 33, and I... When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. John three fourteen, as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Okay, so he's talking about a particular kind of death, a kind of death that the Jewish leadership wouldn't have accomplished. So it was necessary for Rome to be involved. But there's another key element that's important in this. For Jesus to have been crucified at the hands of sinful people, it needed to be both a Jewish and a Gentile delegation that did it. To understand that, some, and one of the one of the things that often rears up with anti-Semitism is that the Jewish people are the ones that killed Jesus. No, Jews and Gentiles both killed Jesus. Come on, are you with me on that? It's true, isn't it? I mean, the, the Jewish people brought, the Jewish leadership, I should say, brought Jesus to Pilate. But Pilate, it was his word, finally, that sentenced Jesus to death. So it needed to be both. And I think that needed to be the case in the plan of God so that nobody could claim, well, that's just a Jewish thing. Right? How many have ever thought about that? It was There's a sense in which our sins caused him to go to the cross. So we're all guilty regarding the death of Jesus. Well, in one way it needed to be Rome because um, because he needed to be lifted up on a pole in order to, to take on himself the curse, God's wrath. The word for crucifixion in Greek, this is just interesting. Again, you don't need to know this. Storos, 
Okay, and it designated a pointed vertical wooden stake firmly fixed to the ground. And this was used for impalement or for crucifixions where people were nailed to the front of it. Basically, the point was to put somebody on display. It was a form of execution that was intended to hold somebody up for all to see as an example of shame while inflicting a slow and painful death. And there's a lot of ancient people who practice a form of crucifixion. But the Romans, they probably learned it from the Carthaginians during the Punic Wars. So uh, maybe they saw how effective it was against Roman soldiers when the Carthaginians did it. And they took on that form of punishment. They said this would be a great way to ensure the peace of Rome. Because if anybody disrupts the peace, we're going to put them on a cross. And we're going to put them on there naked, and we're going to put them on there in a public place. And everybody's going to see them die in a shameful way. And it'll strike terror in the hearts of people. And so that's what their intention was in taking on crucifixion. You can, If you want to read more about that, it's kind of a, um, a dry book, but Martin Hingle's book, Crucifixion, is the standard. And this is an important bit of information. It's in Galatians 3, verse 13, one of the uh, stumbling blocks for a lot of uh, Jewish people coming to faith in Christ was the fact that Jesus was hung on a tree. And they would remember from reading Deuteronomy, verse 21, 23, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree, hung on a pole. They would have remembered that, and they would have said, how can Jesus be the Son of God when he's cursed? How can that be? How can he be both Messiah and cursed? And they really didn't have a category for that in Jesus' day because everybody had, had kind of shifted their focus of the Messiah into a triumphalist focus. Like he's going to come on a white horse, he's going to ride in, and he's going to kick the Romans out, and we're going to have a new son of David sitting on the throne. And that was the thinking that was taking place in people's minds as they uh, imagined the Messiah. And so, especially uh, in the early preaching of the early church, one of the stigmas of the cross was that uh, for, the, for the Gentile, they thought it's crazy to think that a God could be crucified by Rome and then come back to life. That was a stigma for them. For the, for the Jew, it was cursed as everyone who hangs on a tree. How can he be God's son and be cursed? Can't understand that. They couldn't reconcile those two things. So Paul, in Galatians 3.13, helps with that. He says, Yes, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, but Christ was made a curse for us. He took our curse. It's not his own. He was innocent. So whose curse was he bearing? He was bearing our curse. He took our curse so that we don't have to bear it anymore. Thank God. Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yes, Christ was made a curse for us. And the curse uh, was what came in response to disobedience to the law, that anybody who doesn't obey the law is under the curse of God, meaning that God comes after them in judgment. Okay, And he, he sends a curse. Well, Jesus took that. And so if you understand that from a Reformation perspective, the wrath of God was placed upon Christ and not on us so that he can look upon us with kindness. Do you understand that when it talks about his face shining upon us and him being gracious to us, like in Numbers chapter 6, this is the opposite of curse, that it's, we're blessed in Jesus. So this is the point. It needed to happen on a cross. 
All right, so verses uh, 33 through 38, we're going to call this inquest, and this is actually 38a, which means it's just the first part of the verse there, inquest. Look at, uh, look at these verses following with me, 33 through 38, we'll read these, and I have to find it in my Bible, here we go. Um, Pilate then went back inside the palace. He's talked with the Jewish delegates who came in with their indictment of Jesus. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And, and Jesus says to him, Is that your idea? Or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? And this, I, I kind of feel like there's kind of a, a sense of... Um, him looking down upon Jesus. If I were going to, it seems to me that Pilate here is saying, as if I would ever get involved in your little Jewish squabbles. Am I a Jew? And then um, he says, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? And I'd like you to notice here that Jesus doesn't answer the question. Do you notice that? Look at verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. He doesn't answer the question, what have you done? What he answers is the question, are you a king? Okay, he answers that question. He doesn't answer the question, what have you done? He remains silent regarding that. He doesn't defend himself. Remember how it talks about the, sh- the sheep before his shears are silent? This is the way he is, Isaiah 53, silent before his uh, accusers. There's some different parts of the trial, and these play out within uh, um, Jesus' trial. In a Roman trial, you would have the cognito. Okay, that's an O right here. Cognito. This is the investigation of the governor. He's going to ask some questions. Okay, so we we hear that right here. This is taking place right now. Pilate is asking these questions. The prosecution was initiated and conducted by independent prosecutors, and these guys would have been known as, or this portion of it, would be Delatorres. The high priest, his colleagues, they come. They're making the prosecution. They're making the case, which is pretty feeble. Okay, I don't see anything here that suggests that he's guilty of anything. All we see in John is coercion and manipulation. We don't see him really saying anything other than they said he's claimed to be a king. Well, when you get behind the scenes of it, you find out Jesus' response to that is, Look, it doesn't make sense. If I really were leading some kind of insurrection, wouldn't my followers come fight for me? But they didn't come fight for me. So what kind of kingdom am I really running here? That's kind of a shab kingdom, kind of a shab natural kingdom, I should say, if that's the case. If I'm trying to build an army, what a weak army I have. You see? So he's kind of responded to that. A third element here would be... Um, the governor 
would sit on the judgment seat, which we have later on. And uh, then the charge was formulated, not as the infringement of a particular law, but as an indictment of the actions. The governor was required then to evaluate. And then usually there's a group of people that are involved that are known as the concilium. And these are people that give the Roman governor some kind of a advice on the issue, and then he can take it or not take it. We don't have that mentioned in this, but these are some different portions of the, of the uh, trial that normally took place, and that part's lacking. So Pilate repeats, uh, repeated questioning of Jesus suggests that um, Jesus refuses to plead. So he asks the questions more and more. We see that same kind of thing happening with Christian martyrs when they refuse to answer that the Roman governor or whoever's the judge has to repeat more and more questions. I think a trial, unlike in our day, would go for pretty quick. You would lay out the evidence. You would have the rebuttals. First, you would have those who came to the defense of the witness. Jesus doesn't have anybody with him for that. And then you would have the prosecutors come and make their case. And then you have some kind of a uh, meeting of the, the, the committee to judge, and then you'd have a proclamation made about guilt or um, innocence, and then sentencing. And so these things would have gone pretty quick, but you could see a hesitancy in Pilate to, to do anything. And so he's repeating these questions, and I get the sense that what he really wants to do, in fact, it's not even subtle. He really wants to let Jesus go. Do you get that as you read this? I mean, Pontius Pilate, he's a villain to us, but I get the sense that he's an unwilling, in one sense, participant in all of this. He's caused problems for um, Judea throughout his time as governor, but in this one particular case, I get the sense that he doesn't want to have anything to do with this, and that's nothing because he's still guilty. He's still the one that made uh, a decision and, and pronounces judgment. Well, uh, he asks him, are you a king? What have you done? And Jesus responds in verse 36, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So if Pilate's worried that Jesus is here to assert his kingdom through political or military power, he can, he can rest assured that he's not. And I think that's the point of this statement, that his followers are not an army. And the evidence is they didn't fight for him. Now, we know Jesus, uh, or Peter, tried to, and Jesus shut that down real quick and healed the guy so that you can't really bring him to court for that. What's the guy going to do? My, my ear, it hears better than it did before. Jesus touched me. Um, and I doubt you'd find a witness in someone like that. But, and who would believe it? The ear is in place. And so as far as that goes, and then it's not long after that, Peter skedaddles. He's out of there. So nobody really comes to the aid. The one person who's there on the fringe is John. But he's not coming to fight. He witnesses what's taking place here. And so the thing that Pilate needs to know, and he doesn't know, is that Jesus is not a threat to Pilate or to Rome, at least not yet. He's a king, but he's not trying to set up a Christendom. Um, 
as it was later conceived of, we had a time in our church history that's dark. I don't know if you know this, but um, the Holy Roman Empire and some of the uh, injustices that were caused by Christendom are a real shame. And it shows us the danger of what happens when we mix power politics with religion. It can get ugly. And so we need to be, I think as Christians, we need to be political in the sense that we need to have a voice in what happens. And I think it's right for Christians to participate in politics. But we can never believe that politics is going to bring the solution to our problems. It can bring a better world or a worse world, but it can never bring the kingdom. And I'll say amen to that, because it's true. It can't bring the kingdom. Only God can bring the kingdom. He says, now my kingdom is from another place. And uh, so Pilate asks him, you're a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Uh, In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is talking about how he's the truth and what he's doing is the right thing and the true thing. And so he's there to testify to the truth, the truth of who God is, who he is, what man is. And he will testify to that. He'll tell us the way to live before God truth. And truth is the content of what's true, which is a redundancy, I think. But if we understand, we're defining a Greek word for us and ultimately probably an Aramaic or Hebrew word. It's what really is. And Jesus there to testify. He's cutting through all the, the lies and the garbage. I'd like for you to notice, and let's pause here for a moment. We talked about my kingdom's not of this world. Anybody know the four major divisions of Judaism during the time of Jesus. There's four of them. Sadducees, who are what? Do you know where Sadducee comes from? It, it's it's a playoff of Zadok, Zadokses, Sadducees. They're descendants of Zadok, priests. Okay? Who else? Pharisees? Where do the Pharisees sit in regard to the Sadducees? Do they think they're, the Pharisees think the Sadducees are great? No, they don't. They differentiate on the basis of what, mostly? The resurrection, supernatural. Anything supernatural. Sadducees are like, no, we're of this world. Uh, No angels, no resurrection, things like that. Pharisees, where do they fit on the spectrum? They, they believe in the law. I want to tell you, I think that if anybody is a little bit like fundamentalists or evangelicals, it's probably the Pharisees in some ways. Not all Pharisees were bad, by the way. The Pharisees as bad is the legalistic Pharisee that has no room for grace and no room for love, that doesn't look to God, that thinks they're justified in their own behavior. Paul was a Pharisee, and even after he was converted, he got into the, the, high, the Supreme Court you remember, and uh, he divided the court. They wanted to convict him, and he said, fellas, I'm a Pharisee like you guys, because some of them were Pharisees. And all of a sudden, those guys got so interested in fighting and arguing with each other, they let Paul go, right? So Paul identified as a Pharisee, and he even says that in Philippians, a Pharisee of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, and concerning legalistic righteousness, flawless, and, and all of that. So then we have another group of people, 
and they would be like our political um, fighters, zealots, right? They were freedom fighters. They're like, we need to get these Roman fellas out quick, too sweet, right? They wanted to get rid of them. And so there was an extreme wing of them called the Sakari, who were knifemen that tried to get Rome out. They tried to pull off terrorist attacks. And that was an extreme wing of that. And then you had another group of people that felt like the whole system was corrupt and we need to abandon it. We don't really hear about them in the New Testament at all, but they're there. Essenes. And they're the ones that went out to the desert and said, that whole thing's going to burn. We're getting out. And so where does Jesus fit in that? There's a book out by um, Joseph Stoll. I think it's called The Trouble with Jesus or Difficulty with Jesus, something like that. And he talks about how he doesn't fit in there. He doesn't fit in their categories because he's about something altogether different. He's a different kingdom. He's bringing in something altogether different. And so with all of the stuff that's going on out there, you're getting a version of the truth, but Jesus comes, he is the truth, right? How does Pilate respond to that? We're going to run out of time before we run out of material here, so let's get as far as we can. How does Pilate respond to that? I came to testify to the truth. Verse 38, say it with me. What is truth? What is truth? And he doesn't wait around to get the answer because he wasn't asking a question. He was, it was a rhetorical statement to prove a point. And it says here that Pilate retorted what's truth. That's what he said. What is, what is truth? And he doesn't wait around. It says, with that, with that, he went out again to the Jews who were gathered there and said, I find no basis for charge against him. He's not interested in the truth. He just feels that Jesus is to be released. And it's no wonder Pilate was so cynical about truth. He's faced with the wide disparity between promises of Roman peace and its inability to deliver. You know, Rome can talk about peace all day long, but the only way they get it is by crucifying people. Okay, they're not doing it the Jesus way. Let's just say that. They're not doing it the Jesus way by bringing truth to the heart and uh, regeneration through the Holy Spirit. They're unable to deliver. He was high enough to see through Caesar's claim that he was really just a man. And he'd, uh, he had to promote the good of Rome while he, at the same time, saw the ugly side of it. And think about this. His position put people before him who were arguing their case for innocence and guilt. And both sides needed to use facts in whatever way they could manipulate to prove their stance. You know, I, I wonder sometimes people who are lawyers, how they can ever come away not being cynical. Because you see truths and facts manipulated all day long. And if Pilate is seeing cases like this all the time, it's no wonder he's cynical. Like, who really believes the truth? Who really has the truth? So he's cynical about it, but what he doesn't understand is that Jesus is altogether different. You know, the religious leaders even coming in and trying to sell Pilate their story. Pilate's been at this long enough to know when he's being manipulated, but he's never had um, an accused like Jesus before him. Some pleaded their innocence, some pleaded their guilt. Jesus talked about other things. He spoke on a level that was different. He didn't even 
plead his own innocence. He talks about being a king. He didn't say things that were consistent with guilty people pleading their release. He's the one man who really stood before Pilate and offered the truth. All the claims of Rome can't match the reality that this country preacher has to offer. And that's how Pilate would have seen him as a country preacher. You're from Galilee up in the north where it's farmland and not even uh, from a big city. Um, sorry, Leon Morris in his commentary says, Pilate doesn't wait for an answer, which indicates that he didn't look for his prisoner to his prisoner for information on the subject. He just went out. So he goes out, verse 38 and following. Let's uh, get just a few more verses in here and we'll try to wrap up next time. He says, um, he goes out and he says to the crowd that's gathered, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it's your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. This is an interesting guy. Barabbas. Okay, anybody know what the Hebrew word for son is? No. Sorry, that was a trick question. Ben. Benjamin, son of my strength. Anybody know what the Aramaic word for son is? Anybody know what this word is? Father. It's interesting because Matthew tells us his name is Jesus Barabbas, son of the Father. And what's kind of interesting about this as well is that um, he's, a, he's a leader of an insurrection. Uh, Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Mark calls him, uh, says that he was among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection. Luke says that he was cast into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. John calls him a robber or a brigand right here in verse 40. And uh, this word for rebellion, it's used in some different ways, but lesties, okay? And it means somebody who's an insurrectionist or a robber. It can be an outlaw, somebody who's a highwayman and on one end of the spectrum, and on the other end of the spectrum, somebody who's an insurrectionist. And the way that we hear of this, of Barabbas, is that he's an insurrectionist. What does that mean? Who's he, who's he insurrecting? Rome. He's not insurrecting the temple complex or the, maybe he would like to get rid of those guys because they're sellouts. But what he's really interested in, if he's an insurrectionist, is getting Rome out. Do you think that the uh, general public of Israel would think he's a villain or a hero? Probably a hero, right? He's a hero. We want to get him out. What is it, do you think, that the general populace expected of a Messiah? To kick Rome out. It's interesting here because we have a, a strange irony 
in Barabbas that he's Jesus, son of the Father, according to Matthew. Okay. He's an insurrectionist. He fits the messianic profile. He's not claimed to be Messiah, but he fits what the people generally are after, a kingdom of this world. Okay. He's guilty. That's the irony. And what we have is Jesus, who's not guilty, who's got a kingdom from another world, who's not an insurrectionist in the political sense. He is in the spiritual sense. But maybe we would call it more a king returning to his own, the king coming home to a rebellion. That's what Jesus is. The king coming home to a rebellious people and asserting his kingdom. Barabbas, an insurrectionist, fighting a different kind of cause altogether. And and by the way, later on, the kind of behavior that Barabbas promotes is going to lead to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. 66 through 70, the Jewish war is going to happen because a group of people insisted on kicking the Romans out. And Jesus, remember what he said, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you would not. And because of that, this is what's going to happen to you. And he describes a downfall that's ugly because people wouldn't submit and surrender to God and do it God's way. They insisted on doing it through their arm of strength, through man, through might. Now, there's a, a time when fighting the cause, it's the right thing to do, to fight against injustice, to even, I think at times, perhaps even take arms and fight against injustice. But here, they've got a different kind of thing, and if they had only trusted their Messiah, certain things may not have played out exactly as they would. And I want to be very careful in saying that. Barabbas is a rebel, and what we have is Jesus coming in and substituting for him. We have a vivid picture of a substitute, the innocent dying for the guilty, the truth perhaps for a lie. I don't know what Barabbas did with his freedom. I like to think that he was inspired and compelled by the fact that Jesus died for him. that maybe he changed and became a follower of Jesus, but he might be like so many others who have a new lease on life. They go out and they squander it again. Maybe he went right back to fighting for the kingdom of this world instead of trusting for the kingdom of God. And so this brings us to the end of chapter 18. There's more in here because uh, we haven't finished the story. We haven't even finished our text. I'm sorry for that, but I thought it was important that we deal with some of this, the first goal of Wednesday night is to understand the text, okay? So that's what we do Bible study for is we understand it so that when we read the Bible, we can read it with richness. Then the next step hopefully is that we'll apply it in some way that's meaningful to us and relevant. And I think the thing that um, comes out of this text, if we look at the whole of it, is John wants us to know Jesus was innocent and that he was crucified by compulsion the compulsion of sinful men. And so because he's innocent, he's a worthy sacrifice for us. We ought to put our full faith in him. That's what he wants us to know. Peter would like for us to know how to follow his example when we suffer. And that's for more next week. Hey, thanks for your attention tonight. I know there's a a lot of background in this, and uh, maybe that can be a little more difficult to process than... um, just plain truths that we can put into practice. But 
it's important that we understand what's going on. Amen. Let's stand and take a few moments to thank the Lord for his great sacrifice for us. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life, the innocent for the guilty. Lord, we're that exchange, we're that substitution. You gave us freedom, and you took our punishment. And for that, we thank you. We pray that you help us to see that your innocence is purchased for us, a righteousness that comes through faith and not from works, that it's brought us into relationship with God that's not based upon our climbing up, but your having come down, and that we've been forgiven. And Lord, help us to realize the great depth of the fact that the wrath of God was placed upon you so that it doesn't have to dwell on us. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you help us to live with those truths in our daily Christian living, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.